Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Kayla Mason. And my name is Todd Hicksonball, a.k.a. the Todd Father. And we have a great episode for you today. Today, we're talking with Janet Dean and Michael Lastoria. This is going to be a heavy episode um, for some, um, maybe an educational informative. You've never heard this stuff for others. Um, and for and for some others of you, it might just be something that is makes you a little bit mad. And uncomfortable. And uncomfortable. Um, but I love this episode because it helps us to, to be able to engage with um, with something that maybe not all of us have experienced, but on the other hand, a lot of us have experienced. Yeah, and the reason why it might be is because they recently authored a book called um, Listening to Sexual Minorities, a Study of Faith and Sexual Identity on Christian College Campuses. And so really, they just talk about the research that they've done on college campuses to find the opinions, the views of what college students are currently thinking about as it concerns um, all sorts of sexual sexual minorities and LGBTQ and people and so on and so forth. And so. And it also gets into sexual assault. We get yeah. into some of that. We get into all, just, yeah, all sorts of things. Yes. So this is an episode um, that you may not want to listen to with your kids around. So without any further wait, here is our conversation with Janet Dean and Michael Lastoria. Well, Michael and Janet, we're so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. It's great to uh, be here. Yeah, good to be here, Caleb. Thanks for having us. You know, just as we get started, we're really interested in talking with you about um, your recently released book called Listening to Sexual Minorities. And it's really based around kind of a study that you've conducted. Can you kind of tell us about the study that you've recently released and uh, what led you to pursue this study particularly? Okay. Well, I can start and tell you about the study. And um, this is this is part of ongoing work that we've been doing for probably 12 years or so. And a few years ago, I think we're in year four now, or we just completed year four, we decided that we really wanted to know more about um, these Christian sexual minorities and their experiences on Christian college campuses. Um, I think the schools have a hard time understanding this group of students. They have a hard time hearing them. But also, I think outside of the school, lots of people think that they know what these students must be experiencing. And we, we wanted to know, you know, what's the truth? What are they really experiencing? And so we worked with the um, Association for Students uh, or for Christians and Student Development and um, contacted lots of schools. We ended up working with about 15 schools across the United States and had about 160 students participate in the study wow. the first year. And so they did two, some of them did two things. All of them, all 160, completed an online survey for us that told us about their own sexual identity development, their sexual experiences, their faith development, um, the campus climate, all sorts of things. And then a smaller group of them, about 40, uh, did an, kind of a personal one-on-one -on -one interview with us and where we were able to talk to them more specifically about their experiences. 
And this this was a significant commitment uh, from these students because the uh, the online uh, survey was 35 pages. It was long. <laughs> it was long, and and they had to you know they had to stay with us, and then agreeing to a follow up 45 minute uh, interview, as Janet said, about 40 mm. of them. And it's a longitudinal study too, so we've been gathering this data. Uh, we touch base with these students yearly uh, for the uh, survey and the interview and try to uh, track any any changes or any any significant developments in their in their journey. And what can you give us an example of some of the stuff that you might have been asking on these surveys just so that people can understand exactly what you were trying to 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 to, to figure out? We can give lots of examples. Um, it is a mm -hmm. long survey. So uh, in terms of sexual identity, we would say, um, first of all, to participate in the study, all students had to have at some point in their life experienced same-sex sexual attraction. And so with that, then, we would ask them, you know, how would you describe your sexual orientation? Um, how, how do you understand yourself or what's your sexual um, identity? Um, we did at one point separate that out and say, you know, how do you describe your sexual identity to other people publicly and how do you describe it to yourself privately? And so we asked questions like that. We asked um, ages of typical sexual milestone events. So, you know, at, how old were you or have you? And if so, how old were you when you first kissed a member of the same sex? Um, and so we have lots of questions like that. And then um, faith questions. Uh, we used a really well-known scale from Duke University, and it asks about three kinds of religiosity. Um, and it, it would be questions, you know, to what, um, essentially getting at to what degree people um, incorporate or, or integrate their religiosity into their daily life. You know, how much does my faith shape what I do? Um, how often do I attend church? How often do I engage in private um, spiritual practices? Uh, and so questions like that all the way through. We also asked a lot of um, questions about psychological health and well-being, campus climate. Um, would you, how would you describe the climate on your campus towards sexual minorities? Uh, yeah. uh, we asked them about campus resources, uh, also their attitudes toward uh, the policies of the institution, their relationship with those policies in terms of uh, either being aware and also being in agreement or non-agreement. Uh, hence the 35 pages. Right. No, I get that. Now, goes on a bit, yeah. Were these all, were the, so were these students, were they attending Christian universities or religious universities in general, or was it, was it a mixed bag? Uh, all were attending a Christian university. Okay. Okay. So there were three criteria to participate. You had to be attending a Christian yep. university. Gotcha. You had to identify as a Christian, and then you had to have that experience sure. of same-sex attraction. Sure. Right. So, so what what did you find in terms of the range of uh, of services and things that some of these some of you were getting as answers back from the students that these uh, these universities were providing? Hmm. Like, what were the types of things um, that they were doing to, to accommodate them? I'm just curious. Sure, right. sure. Well, we, we, asked, um, we asked them about uh, 
their sense of campus uh, resources and, and how they related to those campus resources. Now, this was mostly, well, we actually asked it in the survey, but we actually uh, got a little bit more in depth from the students from the interviews, uh, phone interviews. And uh, most of the time, what we found is that uh, I would say, uh, uh, correct me here, Janet, if I go off a bit, but I would say about half of those students would talk about uh, significant faculty or staff that they were able to identify as adults on campus that could be uh, supportive. Uh, some of them also talked about uh, alumni uh, groups that were online where they would connect uh, if you want to say uh, uh, advocacy groups or uh, and some uh, would definitely mention I think about a third of them mentioned the counseling center as a place where they could get um, where they could find support and uh, have a place to discuss these issues to follow their journey uh, there were also caveats too I mean some would report well I went to the counseling services and uh, they were they were young and inexperienced, and they were great with some other issues, but I don't think they handled the uh, sexuality issue very well. Sure, that was uh, you know that was from a few of the students uh, who who mentioned that. Others mentioned the counseling services were a great place to start. Uh, campus ministries, uh, probably a little bit less was the office of student life. I think perhaps because that's often associated with. Um, uh, conduct uh, and behavior on campus sure. and, and that students may have been a little more anxious to see that as an, a wide open resource. Sure. Um, uh, and and student student formed groups. Uh, I don't want to say underground groups because I, I think that's too that's excessive, but student formed right. groups. So in fact, on on a campus where I was, uh, I was a faculty mentor for a dinner group that met uh, either weekly or every other week just I, for dinner. I went to a, I went to a small private uh, Christian institution in Ohio uh, and and they had a, a group called Christians for Gays. Um, there was okay. there was a, it was a dinner group that met um, they met like every like every second Thursday or something like that of every month. Um, where they would meet up and kind of talk about talk about things. They they would meet off campus and and uh, and they would they would just kind of talk. So yeah, no, I, I definitely know what what you're talking about with that. Okay. And the other resource for these students were their friends, and most of them talked about having a a significant friend or friend group that made all the difference for them. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, the, oh, not only interesting, that was critical because critical. Uh, these students, when they left uh, advice for other students, which is in the latter part of, of our book, uh, when they left advice, uh, almost uh, without exception, they talked about find one or two students that you can share with. In other, there was some discussion about do I stay um, closed or closeted or do I uh, open up on the Christian campus? And there, there's a, we can talk a little bit more about that if you want, but sure. uh, by and large, they said, fine, uh, it's going to be 
for your benefit to find one or two friends that you can trust as confidants that you can talk to. And what was the temperature, just as you guys were talking with them, what was kind of the temperature uh, on on how, how friendships and, and building friendships and meeting new people on campus was? Particularly for those students, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in hearing you guys talk about this, particularly for the students who had already come out. What was that like? What, or what, what did you get a sense either way, I guess, of, of what that was like for them um, or, 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 or whatever? Cause cause I don't know that our, maybe some of the interview data speaks directly to that. The survey data doesn't. But in talking to students, right. um, you know, I, it, friends, peers are kind of the best and the worst for these students. You know, we know the students who do well, they do well largely because they had a friend group that helped them get through their four years of college. But we also know that students were more likely to hear negative comments and jokes and just um, ridicule and that sort of thing from their peers. And for some of these students, you know, there was a lot of fear about um, sharing their sexual identity. And so a lot of them would stay hidden or they would keep this part of themselves hidden. But for a lot of them, they found that once they, at least my, the students that I know, once they spoke up and once they made a connection with someone, they were surprised by the, the amount of support that they got. So much so that I've had students who have graduated who will say, I wish I had spoken up earlier. I wish I had opened up earlier to, to the people around me. And so and I've just heard that as a consistent theme for students. I would I would agree as as well. In fact, I'm 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 thinking back in from our interviews, there's one one student who talked about uh, my friends have sometimes been the most the most challenging and the biggest obstacles, and yet at the same time, uh, some of those friendships have been some of my most rewarding uh, and growth producing experiences. So mm-hmm. I think friends can can be a, a mixed bag. Now, anecdotally, from my own experience, I'm thinking of a student that I was uh, close to. And I remember as as we talked, uh, he found and, and these young men and women tend to find each other on campus and and begin to form uh, support groups, but I, I also remember uh, this one young man in particular who had a very close friend, uh, and when he came out to this close friend, uh, I think it was uh, about a week later, the friend came and told him that he just he, he just felt he could not be friends with him anymore. And so that would be that would be an example of, of almost like a worst case example when you're when you're thinking mm-hmm. about the value of support and the risk of, of coming out. But that, that was not, uh, by and large, the rule of thumb. The rule of thumb, I think, was more closely to what Janet was referring to, that when these students do come out to, to friends, they take, of course, they take a calculated risk. And in most cases, it's, it's a good decision. It's a good judgment. And, and it's, it turns out to be very supportive. You know, I'm just I'm just a little bit curious of, you know, for the people who you interviewed, what was their, um, their level of confidence or um, attitude towards the universities and um, I guess their confidence in knowing that, you know, the university can 
that they feel safe enough that they can go to someone on the university. Well, that's a that's a big question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I would say mm-hmm. at first, I think it depends mm-hmm. on the university. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of them are slightly different in their climate and the experiences and kind of the the lore, you know, that's there. And so every school is a little bit different. Um, and I know Mike can speak to this too and and fill in some gaps as I as I talk here. Um, Overall, you know, if we ask what's the climate like at your university for sexual minorities, students are reporting a not very favorable environment. Um, You know, they see the the universities as more supportive of individuals with same-sex attraction, but um, not supportive at all of the behavior. And and I say that, and the ratings are still really low. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have gotten better over, you know, the time that we've been doing this, the past 12 years, it's gotten better. It's just still not great. At the same time, these students will report, you know, many of them will report having a really good friend group and loving their school and cherishing the experiences that they had there. Um, but then at the same time, they'll report some fear, you know, if they come out that they might get kicked out of school. Um, and, you know, when you talk to these institutions, most school, most m- most of them, if not all of them, would never kick a student out for just coming out. Um, where the it becomes problematic is when some of the behavior is expressed. Um, or if the student becomes very vocal about these kinds of issues, that might be where they, you know, they get into some trouble with the institution. But typically it's not just because they come out, but students are afraid if they come out that that will happen. And so it's really a mixed bag. Um, What we do know is that, you know, um, we asked students, you know, when you came to this school, were you aware of the policies around sexuality? And all of these schools had pretty... Um, restrictive policies around um, same-sex sexual behavior. And, you know, they kind of fell out. They're a little group who had no clue, but they fell out in thirds. So you had a third that said, yes, I knew, and I completely agree with the school. You had another third who said, yes, I knew, um, but I quietly disagree. And you had another third who said, yes, I knew, but I um, vocally disagree. And um, and so you've got a lot of variation in the students. Now, when we interviewed them and we talked to them about these policies, um, it was surprising to us. This is one of the big surprises from the study mm-hmm. that almost none of them wanted the school to change the overall policy. Now, we've had some discussion about that. Is, is it because they've just given up and they know it's not going to happen? Or is it because they really are, in, you know, don't disagree with the overall policy? And um, what they told us is not that they wanted the school to change its view on sexuality, but that they wanted more help in knowing what was okay and what was not okay to do. Um, and so that was an interesting finding to us. We also know that when students graduate from these schools, on average, they um, they like the school even better when they leave than they did when they were there. So that was also a surprise. <laughs> but Mike, you can fill in for some of the gaps. There. Yeah. Well, I think uh, as I was as I was listening, I I think when we when we talk about this as being a, a diverse group, um, I go back to to the uh, I think the group is called Bridge Over Divide that came out with the uh, 
came out with this labeling, uh, side A and side B. And, and, and side A were individuals who uh, experienced same-sex attraction who believe that uh, same-sex relationships are morally permissible. And side B is a group that believes that these relationships are not morally uh, permissible. And when you look at uh, when Janet was talking about the third, a third, and a third, well, you know, we have a 30 percent uh, of the students agreed with the college policies. Now, it could be that those students maybe uh, believe that same-sex relationships are morally permissible, but they still want to be in in this Christian environment. But most likely, these are students that uh, agree that if they have same-sex attraction, they're going to uh, chart out a different pathway for themselves. And that presents a challenge, uh, a great challenge uh, for themselves. And then another, the other 30% that said, well, I, I vocally disagree uh, or I quietly uh, disagree. Uh, those students may be uh, individuals who are at the Christian schools to get, uh, to get an education, to, to find support. Uh, and they, um, but they believe that uh, these relationships uh, may be morally permissible. And, uh, and so the group, the group itself, you know, of our 160 students, uh, it's really not that easy to categorize them. And, and that doesn't even count the level and the, uh, the strength or intensity of the same and opposite sex attraction that they experience. And so that, that is also uh, on a continuum. So their sexual attractions are on a continuum. Uh, their beliefs about the uh, their attitudes about the moral permissiveness of the behavior is on a continuum, uh, and it, it, you know Mark uh, Mark our principal author is fond of saying if you've met you know if you've met one gay student you've met one gay student, mm -hmm. uh, and that, and that's about as far as you should go because each one has a unique narrative. Yeah. During your research, maybe what was like one or two takeaways that each of you discovered um, in your research? I, th I think one of the things that stands out to me um, is just how religious this group of students were. I mean, compared to the general population, this group of students was like off the charts. Um, they were highly, highly religious. And so, with that being said, then really makes sense. They wanted to find a way to hold their faith and sexual identity together. And um, when we got to the interviews, for example, I think, you know, there are about 40, 39 students who we interviewed in that first round, and only two of them decided that they would either hold on to faith or they would hold on to their sexual identity and drop the other. All of the rest found a way to hold those two things together. And I think it just it, it just makes the point that if we're working with these Christian sexual minorities, we really have to work with both pieces. And um, I, I think there's a tendency, um, you know, that the, the general cultural narrative is that if you're gay, you have to walk away from faith. Um, or if you want to be a Christian, you have to drop the sexual identity. And these students are saying, no, I've, I want to find a way to, to hold them together. And I also think what Janet said is that's what's presenting uh, our campuses now with one of their biggest challenges, because 
Um, I would guess that if you, you know, if we went back a decade uh, or even more, that these students were less likely to speak. They were, they were. Um, sometimes it was even, uh, you know, I even heard people say it's important for the campus to know that there are LGBT students on campus. In other words, we actually exist. And I think in the last ten years, uh, I believe what our research has shown is that these students are identifying uh, and they're trying to tell their stories and they are on our campuses. And I think this was one of the motivations for us to do this research and mm -hmm. hence the title of our book, Listen. Let's begin by listening to yes. these young men and young women and see what we can learn and see how we might uh, assist them in, in, their, in their journeys. And um, that's that's one of the that's one of the big big challenges. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that really surprised me, one of the findings, um, you know, there's this general narrative that um, this is hard work for students to kind of walk in this place where they're uh, a sexual minority and they're in this, you know, this more restrictive or more orthodox Christian environment. And wow, this must be really tough for them. And, and it is tough to some degree. But then the, the next part of that is they must really be suffering. And the mental health data that we collected during this really speaks against that. In fact, most of these students are doing better than we expected. And, um, and when we compare them to a general college sample, they look just like a general college sample, if not a little bit better. And, and the other surprising thing about it was that the more religious they were, the better off they were doing. So I don't, I don't want to minimize that there are some students, some of these students are really, really hurting and really, really struggling, but that's not what's typical for most of them. Hey, Michael, what, uh, could you, what was something that surprised you? Well, Jan and I have talk, talked about this, and, and uh, you know, I wish I could come up with something that was very unique myself. But <laughs> we, we ended up we ended up kind of converging on on some of the same points. We talked about this not being uh, a monolithic group, uh, them being a very diverse group. Um, for the, the, the fact that uh, I, I was also struck by the spiritual, uh, the spirituality of, the, of these students and their, uh, and their desire. They don't want to give up. We use the metaphor um, of students entering campus trying to juggle boxes, almost as if you were bringing boxes into your room to set up shop for the semester. And, and so in, in this case, one of these boxes represented your uh, sexuality and one of these boxes represented your spirituality. And you're trying to carry these two boxes or juggle these two boxes. And uh, what we also caught this in the interviews uh, most, uh, uh, most clearly is that uh, these students really uh, are working with both their spirituality and their sexuality, uh, and they don't want to give up on either box. It's the rare student. I think one or two student students uh, 
gave up on would maybe give up one student i think gave up on uh the spirituality box and another student maybe gave up and said i just i'm just not i'm going to push my sexuality to the background i'm not going to deal with it um but the other students that we interviewed by and large were uh trying to integrate the two they were trying to move forward uh and they were trying to make sense of the tension that was uh, created between these two in the environment that they found themselves. Um, so yeah, that's pretty, very close to what Janet was saying. And, and uh, if I think of something that's different, I'll, I'll let you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, uh, sheepish. I just uh, didn't come up with anything uh, different. I will add to um, what Mike just said there. Um, it was interesting as we looked at these different patterns of holding faith and sexual identity together. Um, you know, we haven't done the research to see which one is the healthiest way. But even among our research team, there was some disagreement about which one was the better way. And um, and so I don't know that we'll, you know, we'll actually be able to determine that. But um how these fit together. I just, I think there's a lot of variety in how people might put them together and what that might look like for them. And there's a lot of opinions on which are good ways to hold them, them together and which are not so good ways to hold them together. Yeah. You know, one of the things, just as I was reading in the book, you know, kind of towards the, towards the end of the book, you kind of give uh, kind of had a conclusion of the study and you give some practical advice on how to engage with and even to respond to a lot of the data and the surveys and the research that you've done um, as it concerns people who are in a sexual minority. So just as, you know, we're kind of winding down a little bit, what is some practical advice that you would give to people in light of your research and the surveys? Yeah, I think... Um, I'm going back to, uh, I think you're referring to chapter eight, and uh, there's three points that we make, and I'd like to talk about at least one of them. Uh, the first one was it, to be intentionally relational, uh, and then intentionally formative, and intentionally secure. And these are the things that we sort of came up as a conclusion, uh, ways in which we'd like to see uh, these climates be encouraged uh, to move toward. Now, when I, I want to start a little bit with the intentionally relational. And this is something, even, even if we put aside sexual identity for a second, uh, our, our culture at this moment is having difficulty with respectful, um, civil uh, conversation. And one of the things that uh, we're speaking to in being intentionally relational is, is a climate that values persons, even when positions may be intention. And the students appeared to be saying to us in their interviews that, at least at this time, that doctrinal positions tended to, to seem still, they tended to trump personhood. Uh, and that was something that was um, that was something that was of concern to them, and and especially for these issues of of complexity, uh, they would prefer a dialogue over a sermon. Uh, 
And yet at the same time, I think many constituencies expect sermons at the macro level. Uh, and by, by contrast, I think uh, our students want to be in dialogue even if the dialogue is with the sermon writers, they, they really crave um, open dialogue. Now, part of this is going to necessitate a, a type of humility, uh, not a humility that, that keeps one from being clear about their ideas and their, uh, and their beliefs. That, that would be counterproductive. But somehow... Uh, going back to that, being able to value the person, even when our positions may be in tension. And I think that's that's almost job one. Uh, we've got to start there. We've got to learn. We've got to learn to sit around the table and, well, manage our fears, quite honestly, because, the you know, when we talk about the, the third one, be intentionally secure, uh, I think that being intentionally secure is not just about creating safe uh, spaces for students, uh, but but for administration administrators and faculty and, and constituents. Each one of those groups, I think, uh, has a way of managing their fear about sitting at the table and opening discussion. Mm-hmm. And we have to be able to address Openly, I think, in some ways, those fears, we have to begin to open the conversation um, with a certain amount of humility uh, and in a climate that values persons, uh, even when positions may be in tension. I know I'm beating that sentence to death, but uh, it, it's, it strikes me as important. Certainly. It's something yeah. it's something we don't even do as a culture with other yeah. issues. Yes. And so then when you bring in an issue that's um, part of a person's identity, it brings up so many emotions that it becomes even harder for us to do it here. And so um, I would I would say that Christian colleges do a pretty good job with relationship. Um, they probably don't do as good a job uh, when relationships involve these kinds of issues, but I think they have the potential to be able to do that. Okay, so I'm I'm just curious, you know, especially hearing, you know, valuing the person um, more than the position. And it seems like, and you can clarify if I'm wrong, um, it seems like that's a lot of what you did through writing this book and through these studies. And so I'm just curious what did you do to put yourself in in that type of mindset? Because I completely agree with you. It's so easy for us to, you know, to, to value our opinions, our positions over the people who we're actually having a dialogue with. And I'm just thinking of the person who's listening right now. And they're like, I completely agree with that. You know, I want to value the person over the position. How do I do that? So what advice would you give them? And how did you do that for the study? Well, I can... Um... Mm-hmm. maybe jump in as Mike and I were uh, getting ready to talk to you all today. Um, we were, well, I guess I'll just be a little self-disclosing. So I, I myself live in two worlds. I am a, a licensed psychologist and um, I'm coming from a, a pretty conservative um, Christian denomination. And so I find myself very often, you know, what I might say as a psychologist 
I, I wouldn't necessarily say in the church, but what I might say in the church, I don't say as a psychologist. And so I live in that tension between these two worlds. And, um, and I've really had to figure out for myself, how am I going to do that? And, and part of the way that I do that is, um, is really beginning to understand that people have, um, people have the right to make up their minds for themselves on how they're going to live their lives. Now, you know, coming from a, a more conservative Christian religion, you know, I have ideas about things, but I also don't think that it's my responsibility to be preaching that at everybody all the time. And maybe that's coming from my psychological training. Um, but I know that when we went into the study, I think all of us had the sense that we wanted to know who these students were, that their stories, that their personhood was what we wanted to know about. That's what we cared about. And that, that for us, you know, kind of trumped everything else. And so can we set aside some of those things and just get to know the person in front of us? And, and I, I think there's a real value in that. I, I do. I, I agree with uh, with Janet, and and also think as a as a researcher, it it is a little bit easier to do that. But then when when Janet Janet followed up by saying also as a psychologist slash therapist, uh, that's that's when I think it it uh, it can be a, a additional uh, an additional challenge. Uh, but but even researchers, when they frame their questions, uh, they can frame them in such a way that there's uh, uh, either known bias or unintentional bias. Um, but when you're when you're trying to create a, a research document and you're trying to create a survey or an interview question, uh, you you go at it with we want to hear we want to hear what the people are saying and we want to try to make sense out of that. Uh, the best we can. So that that mm -hmm. just taking that research position automatically helps. But for, yeah, for me, for me personally, and and, and similar to to Janet, um, I I take scriptures very seriously. It's mm -hmm. uh, I think, uh, but that's different than taking them literally. And and um, I think personally, for me. Um, I find myself, uh, and, and some would consider this wishy-washy, I, I find myself in, in the middle. Uh, I, and so I have made peace with myself, I think, at this point, and saying, if a student comes to me, and I've had both of these students come to me, and if they come to me, I tell them, I'm not sure where this journey is going to lead you. It may lead you, you may decide that your identity in Christ and your faith experience is leading you to live at this time, to live a celibate life until something changes or if nothing changes. And I've also talked with students and they've told me that, oh, I'm past that. I don't, that I'm not conflicted. I'm gay and I fully intend to have uh, same-sex partner and live in a monogamous relationship, and I'm I'm past that. That's not my issue. And what I need help on is X, Y, or Z. And so I will usually respond by saying, I'm not sure where this journey is going to lead in in either direction. Or the student who says, I'm not sure where this journey should lead. 
And I say, I, I'm not sure where it's going to lead either, but I will be there to support you. And in the back of my mind, I think to be at least congruent with my Christianity, I do place an emphasis on uh, spirituality through this entire process. In other words, mm-hmm. uh, are they are they growing in their relationship? Uh, are they are they moving? Uh, are they spiritually alive? Uh, and I will let the rest. Uh, I'll let that be sorted out by them. Uh, and just try to be a support. I don't know if that was very clear. That might be muddled, but it, that's the best. Uh, it's not easy. Well, there's a tension. There's a there's a tension to be managed with these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a very there's a, there's a particularly for a person coming from a faith background. Uh, when we start this discussion, there's there's truly a, a tension to be managed. Um, and, and to be worked through. So whenever, whenever we get answers that like that that might might seem muddy to some people, that's because it's not a simple it's not a simple thing. It's a complex it's a complex thing. And I think that just from listening to the two of you speak, uh, I, mm-hmm. I've really gained a sense even more so that that, that is the case. Um, yeah. And you know, you, you've kind of, you've talked a lot about the being intentionally relational. Can you talk a little bit about the attention of formative and even secure a little bit? Mm-hmm. So let me um, take that, Caleb. I want to just tack on to this previous conversation. Mm-hmm. Living in this tension is something I think we have to do to walk with the students, to help them kind of figure this out for their own. And so I think too often, um, because the tension causes anxiety in us, we retreat to one side or another, right? We, we, we retreat to our doctrinal position, or we retreat to a position where we say, you know, none of that doctrine matters. I'm just going to be over here, and I'm just going to love everybody. And I really believe that to help students to navigate this and to walk with them, part of my job is to step in that tension and be okay in that tension with them. And, um, and, and so I don't, I feel like if I compromise on either side, um, I'm really not as helpful or as loving as I think, as I could be. I I think that tension matters and being comfortable in that space matters. So along with that, I, I think that's part then of how we walk with students, you know, can I live in the tension as they're trying to figure this out? And can I understand that at any time that I see a, see one of these um, students and I'm working with them, they haven't landed in their final place. They're on a journey. And, and part of my job is to come alongside them for whatever part of the journey that I get to be part of and walk with them and, and you know, help them grow in their faith and help them try to figure out this the sexual identity piece and how this fits together but knowing that they are they're in process just like all of us are in process but i think too often when we work with sexual minorities and we come across that they're holding this together we make the assumption that this is it this is the final decision this is the final place um, but it's not final for any of us we're all growing and I think if we can keep that mindset and become part of that journey with them, it becomes less threatening to us. So I have, I just have, um, as we're starting to to wind this thing down, I just have two questions that I'd like to ask the two of you. And if you could both um, kind of give your perspective on it, um, that'd be 
That'd be great. And the, so the first question is this. If you could have everyone learn one thing about the subject of, of being a sexual minority and being in a Christian atmosphere or being a sexual minority in general, um, what would that thing that you would have people learn be? Um, Janet, could we start with you on that? I think uh, the thing that I just want to scream is we can love and care about one another without agreeing. <laughs> That's the thing that I just want yeah. everybody Amen. to hear. <laughs> <laughs> like that. Yes, yes. Uh, the the thing I, I was thinking of is that, uh, and, and, and this is something uh, that that Mark has, has often said as well, um, when you look at uh, from a distance, when you look at the, the gay community, there's, they seem to have a solidarity. Uh, it would be important for us to look at our young uh, men and women um, who are maybe identifying a, as gay or uh, working, working these issues of sexual identity through it, it's so terribly important that they feel that solidarity with the <clears throat> church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and Mark commented this, uh, commented on this uh, uh, recently when uh, he was talking to a a gay psychologist, and uh, this person felt like uh, a particular church environment was hurting this person uh, that he knew. And he said, what's happening is not right. They're, uh, they're hurting our people. And as Mark walked away from that conversation later that evening, he said, he's never heard that from the pulpit uh, about a church identifying with uh, its LGB community and saying, we need to support our people. Mm-hmm. And that's the challenge, uh, and it's not easy. Um, but we need to we need to come alongside, uh, and and I think I think we need to take some risks to do that. Absolutely, come alongside and walk with people through this journey, but also um, help them find ways to um, live out their lives. And so whether they you know, end up pursuing uh, a gay relationship or they end up pursuing celibacy, um, how do we then as a church um, bring them into our body? How do we walk with them? How do we help them grow in their faith? And how do we help them get their needs met, just like we would with anybody else? So uh, before Todd asks his uh, final question, I want to go back to um, the intentions of being formative and secure. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that, maybe starting with you, Michael? Uh, yeah, the form the formative was was in a sense uh, kind of constructing this uh, formational environment. Uh, it It really is more than just kind of um, transmitting a certain knowledge, but this intentionally formational, culture it takes time and it its direction really is informing a certain kind of person and i think i was getting at that when uh i was telling you it wasn't so it, it, 
I began to expand my horizons and think of the individual more holistically and saying, how can I assist this person in their formation, in their growth and development to become the kind of person to form a certain kind of person, uh, a person with a, a Christian identity, if you will. And yes, I know they may have uh, sexual identity concerns, but that that is limiting if we focus on that narrow uh, in that narrow of a framework. So being intentionally formational kind of expands uh, expands the horizons there, and then intentionally secure. I really, I really brought that in when I was talking about uh, being intentionally relational. I was, I was, I brought it in at the end, but didn't label it. It was the issue of intentionally secure is dealing with the fears from all of the uh, various stakeholders in this conversation and being able to recognize uh, what causes fear for students, faculty, staff, administrators, and and other constituents. Um, while also making some relational space to address these fears. Um, and so that that too is going to be uh, that too is going to be very important. Right. I would argue that that we have to have a, a safe, a secure environment mm -hmm. before students are going to be comfortable engaging in the work work of developing who they are. And, you know, it's hard to explore, it's hard to ask questions, um, it's hard to be challenged if you don't feel safe at your core. And so um, I think that, in, that in creating a secure space is essential for us to be able to help students in this journey of becoming whole, healthy people. And, um, and I think that's how those two things work together. And I also think that I was just thinking when you were talking, Janet, that that is going to be built. That's going that piece right there is going to be built very slowly because I was just thinking of a yes. of a client therapist relationship. And sometimes uh, maybe this person has experienced uh, a, a lot of downside in their life and it may take them months to trust their therapist who is supposed to be the all trusting person. And it's one person in the room with them. And I'm thinking now we're talking about trusting a group of people sitting around a table right. uh, and, and, and we're going to have a conversation. I've had faculty members tell me, no, I'm not going to enter that conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm thinking, ouch. Uh, and and I, I honestly was was that a loggerhead. I didn't. I, well, OK, where do we go from here? If you don't want to participate, then you don't want to participate. Um, it that's just not easy. I mean, that's easy to write in a paragraph. Uh, but boy, is, is that hard to get a group of people and say, I think we can begin to lower the barriers and I think we can begin to pull our heads up above and look at each other and be willing to talk about some of the things that concern us, even about having this conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, boy, that that's really hard work. So just as we're finishing up, um, you guys mentioned towards the beginning that this is kind of an ongoing project. You said that you were just finished, I believe you said, year four. Um, and so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just curious, as you're, as you're continuing to move forward, um, what are some things maybe you're learning right now or some things that, that you're looking forward to learning more about as it pertains to your research? 
and we'll, we can start with we can start with uh, with Michael. Okay, I, it's that's funny because I was going to say, go ahead, Janet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, but uh, well, we could we could talk about our. Should we talk a little bit about our next project? Um, sure, go for it. This this per, I mean, our our book, listening to sexual minorities, uh, as you have realized, is about the LGB community. We left out the T because it's a it's a unique population, and we didn't feel we could do it justice in this work. Now, we've received a, uh, a small grant from the Louisville Institute, and we've also have support from uh, the ACSD, the Association for Christian and Student Development, and also some support from the CCCU, uh, the Christian College um, Consortium. No, that's not right. Okay, it's so the CCCU. And um, uh, this new study is going to be very, it's going to have some similar shape, longitudinal. Uh, survey and interview format, but we're we're going to this time rather than saying if you've had same-sex attraction, we're going to ask the students to identify if they've had uh, identity uh, identity confusion or identity uh, incongruence. Uh, in other words, we're looking at the uh, possible gender uh, dysphoria or or transgender uh, population. And uh, so that's going to be our, our next project that we're going to hopefully begin this fall. Janet, do you have anything to add with that? Uh, well, I've been, um, I, I like to play with numbers. And, um, and so I've been further analyzing the, the data that we have. We have so much data. And um, so I've, really, I've really been interested in the mental health piece and how well are these students doing. And so some of the analyses that I've been doing after after we finished with the book, um, you know, I think in the book you see at some point that if if we want to be able to predict how well a student is doing psychologically, we know that we can look at their intrinsic religiosity, how much they incorporate um, faith into their everyday life and their gender identity, and that the, those two things predict psychological um, health. Um, and so in, in further analyses, I would I can add in social support. So so, you know, you really have these three predictors. If students are highly religious, if they're um, cisgender, not transgender, and if they have good social support, then they're going to be more psychologically healthy. Well, I wanted to know a little bit more about this relationship. And so as I did that and I, I ran these other analyses, what we really found is um if I, I look at religiosity and the way that it affects mental health, that it's what we would call moderated by another variable, and that variable is self-acceptance. So essentially it works this way. The, um, the more religious I am, typically, the more self-acceptance I have, and therefore um, the better my mental health will be. And that's actually a stronger relationship than if I leave the self-acceptance out. We see the same pattern with social support. So yes, social support tends to predict mental health in these students. But if that social support leads to, leads to more self-acceptance, then it's a really strong predictor of mental health. And the practical implication of that is that, you know, if I'm working with these students, um, the more that I can help them accept themselves and be comfortable with who they are, um, and 
they're going to find that through their friend group and they're going to find that through religion, it looks like, then the better off they're going to be in the long run. And, um, and so I think really as we're talking about how we help them hold these two, you know, two things together, faith and sexual identity, it really becomes accepting both pieces of who they are. And, and they're going to be better off if we can do that. Well, Jana and Michael, thank you so much for writing this book. Thanks so much for having this conversation and uh, just really continuing this dialogue. If people want to continue to learn more from each of you and find out more about the book, where's the best place for them to do that? Um, I think they could go to InterVarsity Press. They could look up the book on Amazon or they could look up um, the Institute for the Study of Sexual Identity. Um, and those would be the probably the three best places to learn about this work. Agreed. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the Learner's Corner today. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you very much, gentlemen. Wow. Um, powerful episode. Uh, definitely loved getting to hear um, a lot of the things I had to say. Caleb, what's something maybe you took away from this episode? Just the importance of listening. Yeah. I think, um, I think there's, uh, a spe- I think many people want to give answers, um, particularly whenever it comes to this. But listening is so important. And Michael and Janet um, just exhibit that really, really well, as well as, uh, as well as the rest of the team that worked on this book and I think it's just important for us and we need to pay attention to it because whether or not we want to admit it or not it's it's reality right and I think so many times um not not just with this particularly whenever it comes to Christians um but just just in life in general whenever reality isn't what we hoped it would be there's a tendency for us to deny it and wish that things were different but that's not helpful or to flat out just, you know, remember, this is the question that I that I like to ask a lot. Um, it comes from Andy Stanley. Like, what does love require of me today? And so for a lot of Christians, especially when we deal with the LGBTQIA plus and all that kind of everything that kind of goes around that, um, I think the thing is to say, you know, that's sin, that's horrible. Um, you all are, are terrible, you know. But what does love require of me today? Um, love requires me to say, I, I'm going to support you. I'm going to love you. Um, even though I might not agree with what you're doing, I love you. I'm supporting you. I want you to know I'm here. All those types of things. That's hard for a lot of people to hear and understand on both sides. Yep. So just as a reminder, um, we've been releasing episodes all throughout this month, extra episodes. And so if you've missed any of those, go back to the podcast feed and check any of them out next week we're going to be talking with our friend Stuart Hall and we're going to be talking with Stuart about how to become a better student of culture and um, what you can do to understand he um, yells at me a lot better understand um, culture shout out to Stuart Hall and some practical ways that you can um, could just understand for yelling better. at me he yells at me a lot. Or if you just want to hear Stuart yell at Todd, you don't want to miss next week's episode. And the best way to make sure that you don't miss that episode is by subscribing to this podcast on whatever podcast player you use. He didn't really yell at me a whole lot. 
Don't forget to leave a rating or write a review at the podcast on iTunes. It's the best way um, that you can help us expand these conversations, um, important conversations like these, just the way that the podcast algorithm works. The more ratings and reviews that are left, uh, the broader this podcast um, becomes. And so leave a rating, write a review, let us know what you would like to learn about, um, things that you're currently learning as well. Thank you so much for listening to the Learner's Corner podcast today. Until next time, my name is Caleb Mason. My name is Todd Hicksonball. And keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.